Welcome to the Matt Goodwin Subcast. It's good to have you with us. This is a subscriber-supported platform, so do consider supporting us at mattgoodwin.substack.com and feel free to connect with me direct on Twitter at GoodwinMJ. We hope you enjoy today's subcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. And this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Eric Kaufman from the University of London, Birkbeck. And I wanted to get Eric on to firstly talk about a fascinating new report uh, that he's just published on the culture wars in uh, British politics. Uh, But beyond that, uh, Eric has been doing a lot of work in the US on similar issues, looking at what's happening within universities, what's happening within our increasingly polarized societies, and has been looking at that mainly, though not exclusively, from the perspective of the radical progressive left. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with Eric. Obviously, previously, we've had people like Andrew Doyle on the show, um, and we've talked about the rise of a more radical uh, progressivism. Uh, But Eric is definitely the guy with the numbers and the research and the data and has been looking at a lot of this uh, empirically. So without further ado, Eric, welcome to the show. Matt, it's great to be here. Um, lots to talk about. So let's let's kick off with this report that you've just published with Policy Exchange on the, the politics of the culture wars. Um, what's it about? Just tell us a bit about what, what the report's covering. Yeah, well, there's this, there are two sort of linked reports, and one is uh, focusing a lot on the pu- public opinion on culture war issues in Britain, sort of the companion report to the Manhattan Institute uh, report I did for the U.S. on the same same title, not very inventive. Um, and then the other report is on 18, basically 18 to 20-year-olds uh, in Britain, looking back at what they were taught in school and also looking at their beliefs. So... Essentially, what these two reports attempt to do is map out what I see as an emerging uh, divide, the culture war divide between what I call cultural socialism, which is essentially this is the idea that outcomes for identity groups need to be equal uh, and identity groups need to be protected from harms, including very small psychological harms, what we might call microaggressions. Um, On the other hand, we have two types of people, one which which we'll call cultural liberals who believe in free speech, due process, equal treatment with, without regard to uh, characteristics, objective truth, and then large, to a large extent overlapping cultural patriots, if you like, who are interested very much in uh, social cohesion, attachment to history, and so on. And there's a a sort of an incompatibility between these ideas as, as they push forward. And so, for example whether it be a statue of Winston Churchill. Um, For cultural socialists, Churchill would be seen as a retrograde figure who said racist things, whereas for a cultural patriot, he would be seen as a a heroic figure who defended the the nation at a a dire hour. Um, And so, yeah, the long and the short of it is what I find is essentially public opinion is is over two to one in favor of the cultural liberal and uh, patriot position, and only about one in three back the cultural socialist position. However, uh, and this is exactly the same thing as I found in the United States, uh, if you if you look at people that are underage 
25. So the 25 and under group are evenly divided uh, on a lot of cultural war issues, one-to-one, or even on some issues more cultural socialist than they are cultural liberal. And so people who say, oh, well, you know, this wokeness is a temporary blip and it's going away because we had an editorial in in Harper's of the New York Times. Uh, My message is really, no, we're just at the beginning uh, of a process in which a cultural socialist generation or a relatively woke generation. I mean, I'm using woke and cultural socialist relatively interchangeably here, but they're, they're not exactly the same thing. But as this generation enters the workforce, enters organizations, it's going to change the, the culture of those organizations. We've seen that with employee activism uh, at the New York Times for, and, and other places, for example. And they're eventually going to, to affect policy and the median voter, uh, the electoral map as well. So one of the views of the culture wars is that essentially a lot of this is irrelevant. It's fringe. You know, you often hear from friends on the on the left that actually, you know, culture war politics is is being generated by conservatives to distract from the more more pressing economic issues. I've never particularly found that that view convincing for lots of different reasons. But but you've empirically shown that essentially the culture divide between these different factions is very real, is very strong, it's very um, pronounced. But you're also pushing back against this idea that it's just a passing fad, that essentially we're on the we're at the beginning, if you like, of a cultural revolution that is largely going to be driven by Gen Z and um, younger voters, particularly younger women. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, and, and in Britain, I think there's something like a 50-point gender gap on some of these questions uh, for the under 25. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right to point to the gender aspect of this. But um, I think the broader question, I think you once mentioned that these are not just culture war issues. These are sort of foundational to everything the West believes in, when, you know, all those cultural enlightenment values around free speech, um, due process, the scientific method, uh, all of those key processes that have been important for Western success are, are under threat by uh, from this ideology. Not only that, of course, social cohesion uh, is definitely targeted. The attack on history, the attack on memory, on the identity of ethnic majorities, all of that stokes division, uh, which has all kinds of downstream effects. So, yeah, I think this is an enormous issue. And the other thing I'd say is, Clearly, a, a question like membership of the European Union, for example, which was a low salience issue, um, was suddenly boosted dramatically, you know, in the 2010s. And what we're seeing in the United States is that this issue is, is rising up people's priority lists as well. So I think, yes, we would underestimate it if we said that it was just a tempest in, the, in a teapot or, or, or a little scrum in the campus playpen. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the questions I was going to ask you, which was about salience. So one of the arguments that's often made is that is that Britain is going to slowly become America in terms of importing the culture wars, Um, you know, whether that is uh, focused on, um, you know, the symbolism of uh, this cultural conflict, the statues, the, the buildings being renamed, the reading lists being decolonized. But also, I think increasingly in terms of schooling, in terms of how we teach uh, and what we teach children about race, sex and gender. Um, 
The counter to that is that actually Britain's political culture historically has always been a civic, moderate, consensual, pluralistic culture, and that is going to be really the, the big obstacle to us becoming America. I mean, what's your what's your view on that? Where Where is Britain going? Are we going to become as polarized as America over the next few decades? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And I'll just answer with reference to one of the reports. Um, so in Britain, you know, I asked 18 to 20 year olds what they'd been taught in school uh, and whether they'd been taught a number of concepts, white privilege, unconscious bias, systemic racism, patriarchy, many genders. And what you saw in this survey was that 59% of British school children have been taught one of those three critical race theory terms, white privilege, systemic racism, unconscious bias, and it rises to 73% uh, if we include the other two more gender-associated uh, concepts. So we've got 73% exposed to one of those five critical social justice concepts. Now, if we compare that to the United States, in Britain, it's 59% exposure to CRT. In the United States, it is around 80%. And it's sort of 73% in Britain for exposure to one of those five concepts. It's 93 in the United States. So on the basis of these two surveys, I would say the, the Britain, at least in terms of CRT in schools, is sort of between two-thirds and three-quarters down the road of the United States. And I think if you look also at the media uh, the media trends in terms of mentions of culture war, mentions of social justice terms, Britain is tracking, as you know, from your own research, uh, the United States. And so in many ways, I think Britain is very much converging. And the only missing piece is really the backlash piece. That's already there in the media. It's not yet there in the politics the way we've seen with people like Glenn Youngkin and uh, Blake Masters and, and Ron DeSantis. I suspect it's just a matter of time before the right political constellation comes in here as well. Let me just press you on that, because that's actually one of the questions I had for you. So we have a situation here, if I look at your report, where the British public split two to one against what you might call the, the cultural leftist, cultural socialist position. And yet those ideas, those narratives, the concepts of radical progressivism, wokeism, whatever you want to call it, um, those ideas are very prominent across media, across universities, across institutions. So why, given the public opinion of this, are the British Tories not making a lot more noise about this issue? Well, I think you sort of put your finger on it in, in one of your Substack pieces that I think that there is a certain culture in the Conservative Party that is essentially economically liberal sort of gentlemanly, it is all about, you know, that status plays a big role in this. And also there's a, there's a simply a greater timidity because you have more social liberals. I would say, you know, if you take the Conservative Party and compare it to the Republican Party, uh, you just have a much larger share of business liberal, social liberals in the Conservative Party. It's a bit like the way the, the Republicans were prior to the Trump revolution. It's more like that. Although I would say even then, there were more social conservatives in the American Republican Party. So, yeah, I think what you have is just a very – is it sort of a, a mismatch or a dissonance between the conservative politicians and, and the conservative voting base. And that's one reason I think these issues haven't received uh, – as aren't as salient in Britain, and they're not. I mean, if you look at the U.S., roughly half of Republican voters in a, from a list of 10 would put culture wars issues in there 
in their top three, and that's only about 20% in Britain. So it definitely hasn't achieved the same salience uh, amongst conservatives in Britain that it has amongst Republicans in the U.S., but I suspect, as with the European issue, that, that it wouldn't take much to boost that. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, the data in your in your piece and um, looking at just how strongly conservatives feel uh, about some of the issues uh, that we're talking about, and uh, some of the numbers are pretty striking. Ninety one percent of conservative voters uh, think political correctness has gone too far. Ninety two percent say we should not just be pulling down historical statues without prior government approval. Uh, 79% reject the uh, claim that Britain is structurally racist. About 80% do not think British children should be taught that the country is structurally racist or that there is no such thing as biological sex. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I'll let listeners download the report for themselves from the Policy Exchange website and read it. But if I was a conservative strategist, in uh, Team Sunak, looking at those numbers, I would be thinking, you know what, one way in which I can put back together this electoral coalition that I've got is by turning up the volume on these cultural uh, questions. But yet the British Conservatives, you know, mainly because of status, mainly because of, I think, a very strong liberal tradition within the Conservative Parliamentary Party, just don't want to do that. And yet, the co- and so the contrast with American Republicans, I think, becomes quite quite stark. There you've got Republicans who, you know, even though they underperformed in the midterms, have still got double digit leads among workers, non-graduates. They're now eating into the Hispanic Latino vote. I think 40% of Hispanic Latino voters uh, voted Republican in the midterms. And they just seem to have a much stronger grasp of what is actually uh, holding that realignment together and what's cutting across the left and right divide, and the British Conservatives just seem completely lost to me. They just seem like they don't want to go anywhere near the issues that would give that electorate uh, a bit more glue than it has at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, you've seen, uh, obviously, Tim Bale's UK and EU study of the MP survey, which showed, you know, that the typical Tory MP is, is to the left of the average member of the general public, never mind the average Tory voter, all right? So they are completely out of touch. Uh, The recruitment pipeline is obviously completely broken uh, in terms of the Conservative Party. They're probably more like a a German uh, business liberal party, like the FDP. That's the kind of party that, that they are. And so, yeah, I mean, they're not they don't want to take this on. They don't want it to, to, to cause them not to be invited, perhaps, to the right Westminster uh, socials. I mean, I, I just think that until you have a challenger that is able to either push them to, to the place that most voters are or, or else to, to a third-party challenge, I, I'm not sure how this changes. Uh, you know, in the United States, clearly there was a, you know, Trump reconfigured the party for good and for ill. But one of the good things probably was that with this sort of renewed activism in the media, in institutions, I mean, this is part of the backdrop. I mean, with that, you actually need more government to push back. So thinking about society, I always say it's it's a three-layer system where you have government mediating institutions and then individuals. What's occurred is with cultural socialism is it's been driven at that administrative layer of institutions in the middle, the schools, the NHS, uh, universities, 
publishing, etc. That's where it's being driven. The only way it's going to be countered, because the the cultural right, if you like, doesn't control any institutions. The only way that it can be countered is through a popularly elected government, which is the only institution the right has a chance of controlling. And so quite naturally, right of center parties are going to have to be a lot more proactive on this issue. The left can just go with the status quo. Uh, And so the natural tactic for left-wing parties is just to accuse the right-wing parties of stoking the culture war in the hope that they will shut up and, and stop doing it and more or less allow the left, the shock troops, a free reign in the institutions. And sort of in the United States, we can see the Republicans now get that and are, are sort of campaigning against the institutions. In a way, I think the conservative party here will have to get to the point where it is campaigning against the institutions. And that's a place that is just not comfortable uh, currently. And that and just, has to change. Yeah. Yeah. And just on the institutions, I mean, my reading of this, and you may disagree, but, you know, obviously when we, when people talk about you know, the long march through the institutions and so on, I mean, it to, to many people, it, it sounds pretty conspiratorial. Um, but in my mind, it, it's simply about education-based polarization. I think basically what we've seen over the last 40 years the institutions have become much more dependent upon university graduates, a university graduate minority, particularly graduates from Russell Group uh, institutions in Oxbridge. As they've become more dependent upon graduates and graduates have moved left on cultural questions, and you can see that in all the data in the US and the UK, university graduates have essentially doubled down on on uh, cultural liberalism, especially after Brexit, especially after Trump. And as they've done that, the institutions have kind of gone with them because they're often dominating the sort of senior positions and the positions of influence. So if you're looking at, you know, think tanks, uh, BBC, universities, uh, schools, uh, NHS and others, you know, any institution that is basically disproportionately dominated by elite graduates, you know, is then sort of amplifying um, this particular ideological worldview, even if often it's just saying, well, look, I'm trying to make the world a better place. And, you know, why don't we just all have rainbow lanyards and that's all fine. Um, but is that, I mean, is that's basically my reading is that a lot of this is essentially education based polarization. I mean, education based polarization, I think I agree with you is, is extremely important, but I think also there've been a number of changes which are so I think you can trace back things like racial sensitivity training, the ancestor of diversity training. I think it goes back to the 70s. Um, and you can certainly see with the university's political correctness when I went through university was big. You know, the anti racism stuff was big. Uh, I think that there's been a sort of gradual institutionalization of these cultural socialist ideas, which which, which again are equal outcomes for identity groups based around race, gender, and sexuality, and uh, protection from even microscopic emotional harms for these groups, that that ideology has been steadily rising. I don't think it's a sudden change. It's been steadily rising within our um, elite institutions. And then what you have, of course, in the 2010s is two major changes. One is the rise of social media. um, And the second is the rise of a sort of clickbait model of journalism instead of a classified ads model, which which Ezra Klein talks about. Uh, and all of that means that, that the most fashionable radical ideas out of the academy suddenly converge. Uh, you saw David Rosado's uh, paper on this where he looks at the academic abstracts, he looks at newspaper 
stories and you can see all the sort of social justice terms that had been running in academia yeah. since the 70s and 80s well ahead of the media and then suddenly in the 2010s the media just converges and, and that's showing you that these ideas are just streaming off campus in the sort of late 2010s yeah and david's work by the way is incredibly important uh we we have had uh i've worked with david we did a report on as you have uh, we did a report on the trends in uk media and they're pretty striking they're essentially as you say mirroring what's happening in the us a kind of a, a sharp upsurge in coverage of concepts like white privilege, institutional racism, and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, it's one of the known unknowns to be a sort of, to use a cliche is what actually happens when Gen Z, uh, which we can see, you know, Gen Z tend to maybe not be as culturally liberal as, uh, as their slightly older counterparts, but nonetheless are very, you know, they lean very strongly left that they have very clear progressive positions on lots of issues. Um, some might say radic- radically progressive um, positions. But what happens when, when they enter, you know, the institutions in the workplace? And that's where essentially what you're suggesting and you're showing with the report is that, you know, we're likely to see a much more um, prominent or acceleration uh, of this trend um, uh, going forward, which, which to me is, you know, is instinctively what I see you know, working in universities and around and, and noticing, you know, the generational trends over the last 20 years, that to me is very, very palpable. But it's mainly, as I say, mainly young women. And that's, that's really my question to you, which is what is happening among young university educated women? Why are they increasingly diverging from their male counterparts? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I, I think if you look, so the, the Higher Education Research Institute in the U.S. has this survey called a freshman survey of all incoming freshmen in U.S. university systems, which they've been running since 1970. You can see that in 1970, female students were more conservative than male students. <laughs> and And... Then you fast forward, starting in about 2004, women start to become more liberal than men. Liberal meaning left-wing in the U.S. context. Uh, and then by the time, that you know, the, the last data I've seen had women up 14 points over men. Um, now, the way I interpret all of this is essentially that women will reinforce whatever is the orthodox community belief system. And so if that orthodoxy is cultural socialism, microaggressions, uh, not not giving offense, then that's what they're they're going to support. So I think this is very much about uh, you know, women will if the if the belief system is religious, they'll support the, the religious belief system, which is what it what it was, say, prior to 1970. So I don't think it's anything more complicated than that, actually. Um, and it's not simply about being more compassionate, because clearly compassion for whites, males, and conservatives is not particularly high in this group, right? So it's not actually, I don't believe this is strictly about compassion. It's about who are the targets of compassion and who are the targets of outrage, right? And that's ideologically given. So I just think that under the current ideological conditions, yeah, women are going to be uh, encouraged to more or less back that sort of soft culture, what I call the a banal or soft wokeness, which pervades our institutions. So that's that's distinctive from the blue-haired cancel culture, uh, you know, chasing Charles Murray off of Middlebury and, and 
That sort of very hot activism, I think, only works because of this background noise, this sort of ambient soft wokery that has actually just built up, I would say, over a number of decades. It was certainly there to some degree in the 1980s and 90s. And just just on that, I mean, that one of the questions that was in my mind while I was reading your your report, both both the one on the UK and the US, was um, the role of moderate liberals in in all this. Because if you talk to you know the sort of moderate middle majority, whatever your favourite phrase is, um, they have typically been quiet during the culture wars. They're not sure where they should be on many of these issues. And to be blunt, many of them just simply want to try and make the world a better place and will often say things like, well, you know, I think these guys kind of take it too far, but, you know, we're ultimately about um, strengthening minority rights and pushing back against racism, and these aren't bad things, so therefore I'm not really going to put my head above the parapet and, and get involved in the culture wars. Um, I mean, what's your what's your take on moderate liberals and 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 the extent to which they should be anxious and worried about this specific ideology um you call it cultural socialism i might call it radical progressivism but what's your what's your view of where moderates go on this on this issue well well you're you're absolutely right to point to the difference between moderate and far left on these issues first of all i mean i would just say you know if you compare that progressive activist group which more in common identified you know eight percent in the u.s 13 percent in britain they're the only they're a real outlier in their views on political correctness you know they're the only group that doesn't think political correctness has gone too far on on the whole whereas the, the center left does you look at kathleen stock and jk rowling on those issues um only the far left thinks that rolling in stock, you know, should be essentially dropped or cancelled, or or at least they're evenly divided. Whereas the other center left is is much more pro freedom. Um, but I do think there it's tricky. Like I think a good example is the academic surveys that you and I have done. I mean, if if you look at the questions, for example, if you ask people. Um, do you think political correctness is a good thing because it protects against discrimination or is it a bad thing because it stifles freedom of speech? You know, the kind of the typical center left response is, oh, I'm in favor of political, political correctness. It's something like three quarters of UK social science and humanities academics are in favor of PC on that definition. Um, why? Because it sounds like, oh, you're protecting the weak from the powerful. And that I think has a stronger emotional punch for, for a lot of center leftists than this idea of protecting freedom of speech. That doesn't sort of carry a lot of emotional weight with it, maybe because it hasn't been associated through movies and film and other things in the culture. I mean, we don't have strong myths and icons necessarily of, of free speech the way we do of, you know, if you think about the Holocaust and slavery and, and all of these sorts of things, they're, they're just much more prominent in our culture. So, yeah, I think those center leftists, it's a lower priority. Their values, are, they still place more value, I think, on the cultural care, harm, and equality foundations than they do on the Liberty Foundation. Um, and so when, now, however, if there is something that is directly affecting them, like if you say, um, you don't get to set your reading list, your reading list must reflect the concerns of these groups then academics will say, no, no, I want to set my own reading list. Or, or if you say academic freedom versus 
social justice. They'll go two to one for academic freedom. But that's, in both of those cases, it's very personal. Like someone's going to interfere with your right to set your reading list. Or perhaps if someone is going to cancel, you know, someone tries to cancel another academic, you can kind of see that could happen to you. So in some cases, the center left is able to say, actually, this is a risk and I'm not going to support this. But in other cases, such as being all in favor of decolonizing reading lists, I mean, as you know, that's or, or diversity statements, you know. I mean, I was going to say it depends. It depends on what that academic has done, uh, the academic who's being cancelled. I mean, if they're seen as being on the wrong side of the of the uh, ideological dividing line, then you know what? Actually, I think the vast majority of academics would just sit in silence and watch watch that person be cancelled. I mean, that <laughs> essentially is what has happened. I mean, you know, my sort of ch- change of position on this issue over the last five years was was really shaped quite strongly by watching the lack of response from higher education to the treatment of people like Kathleen Stott, Noah Carl, Nigel Bigger and others that on the one hand, academics are making this sort of ludicrous argument that we didn't have a problem with uh, academic freedom and uh, freedom of expression on campus. And at the same time, we were having these these very real world examples of people clearly being persecuted and discriminated against because of their views. And you know, as I'm sure you can relate to as well, for people who are actually working within these institutions, the idea that that actually political minorities are not experiencing negative repercussions is for the birds. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's an utterly ridiculous position. Um, but uh, but I think that I think that debate has been won. I think that debate actually has been won for now. Uh, by those those of us who who have made the case that academic freedom is is under threat, the question that often runs through my mind, however, is what the thirteen percent try to do next, and and that's the thing for me. It's the numbers, you know, thirteen percent in the more in common study that would suggest that thirteen percent of Britain is kind of radically progressive. The King study um, uh, puts the figure much higher. I think twenty three to 25 percent um and i suspect if your own work is right then as we go forward that will that will steadily expand um but then you often come across a view that says well look actually wokeism will burn itself out people say you know this ideology will burn itself out because of its inherent contradictions and because people will realize that actually it does pose a particular problem to democracy. Fukuyama and others have made this argument. You've made this argument. Mark Liller and others have made this argument that actually moderates will realize that wokeism is fundamentally illiberal, um, is not democratic, and that it will burn itself out and lose support from the wider majority. I mean, what's your what's your reading on all of that? Um, I, I'm not. I'm less certain that that's the case because I think it, it rests on an appeal that says uh, groups that have more victim capital, in a way, deserve our sympathy, um, and ensuring equal outcomes by removing these invisible structures that we somehow can't measure, but you have to trust me that they're there. Uh, that that, and also preventing. Uh, microaggressions to these harm to these groups because that's an emotional trauma. You know, essentially those sorts of values, I think, just are more powerful, particularly amongst that younger group. And and for example, support for 
firing academics who do controversial research on race, gender, and sexuality is sort of twice as high amongst academics under 35 as over 50. There's this real big divide between older leftists and younger leftists. I mean, that is the biggest gap on these issues. The younger leftists are vastly more illiberal than the older leftists. Whereas if you look on the right, there's not a whole lot of difference. You know, young right, old right, they're very similar on these issues. Um, so it's really a sea change. In, and, and I actually think, however, that a lot of people on the left, I just think that their attachment is more to this idea of equality of outcome and harm protection than it is to, to freedom. And I just think those freedom value, I mean, they'll tip their cap, they, they care about them, but is it enough for them to, I you know, join forces with with the right on this? No, I mean the, the the tribal boundary will ensure that they prioritize other things, and so and and similarly, they will take at face value someone who comes along and says you're a transphobe if you support J.K. Rowling, or you're a, a a racist if you don't support diversity statement. I mean, they will more or less fall into line, and I don't think it's just by the way. I don't think it is just preference falsification and not wanting to, to put your head above the parapet. I actually think it's genuine belief. They genuinely believe it is a moral, a more moral way to be. They feel better about themselves when they're supporting who they consider to be the oppressed group. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, I definitely see that. And the, the distinction between old and young leftists when I read the report was surprising to me because when you look at many of the protests or the... Um, no platforming that takes place. You know, if you look at Helen Joyce recently at um, at Cambridge, um, and uh, the the way in which that particular protest against her right to speak, if you if you like, was that was actually led by senior uh, senior academics. You know, fifties and sixties. You might badge them as a sort of older left. Um, and in that case, it was you know younger students, inquisitive students who wanted to sort of come along and hear these unconventional views on on trans issues. Um, so when I was reading your report, I was kind of thinking about well, what about the VCs? What about the senior administrators? What about the uh, you know the older left? That clearly there is a a faction there that is kind of um, more radical in many ways than than some of the students I teach. You know, it's uh, it's it's a it's a curious state of affairs. Yeah, I, I think you're right. A, a couple of things. One is faculty are more of a selection than students in terms of so so academics are more highly selected. Um, if in the U.S. case, I'll just where I know the numbers right off the top of my head, it's sort of two and a half left wing students for every one student on the right, but in the social sciences and humanities, it's, it's sort of 10, 12, 14 to 1. So the, the numbers are just more extreme in the faculty. And the other thing I should say is, in terms of a statistical model predicting support for cancel culture or removal of statues, you know, where you are on the five-point left-to-right scale is a stronger predictor than your age. Age is still a very strong predictor, independent of left-right ideology. And there's an interaction between being very left and being very young. But even with all of that, yeah, ideology counts for more. So you'll find plenty of old, old woke leftists and plenty of young, uh, non-woke. And and of course, the same with females. Obviously, most of the many of the most prominent anti-woke activists are women. So you you can't really completely generalize. These are just tendencies, if you like, in the data. 
when when did your university career begin? I mean, what 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 year would you say was the the beginning of your academic career? Um, it sort of started in the nineties, uh, mid nineties. Yeah. Now I had done my undergraduate in the late eighties, early nineties when the first wave of political correctness was coming. I I remember very eagerly reading Bloom's Closing of the American Mind when it came out and and agreeing with every page. Uh, (laughs) It shows you where I've been for the last God knows how many years. Uh, But yeah. You've kind of been on the journey, right? I mean, I talk to to academics uh, a little bit older than me and I say, you know, what what was academia like even, you know, even earlier, you know, and they say, well, you've got to remember that the 70s and the 80s, Conservatives were very, very prominent on campus. I mean, it was a, it was a very, in, in particularly in areas like history and economics and so on. And it was a very different world from what it is now. But have you observed the changes you're now studying in your own life? I would say yes, but except I would say it's more the case that the dial's been turned from about an eight out of ten to about eleven out of ten. So it was already pretty prominent when I remember there was a, a talk by a, a guy called Philip Rushton uh, on the Western campus. Of course, you were at Western briefly as well. but yeah. uh, And there was a big hullabaloo and he had a debate with David Suzuki and, and, you know, but he had his debate and it was just kind of taken for granted that there was a certain legitimacy to the free speech position. Um, so there was still enough of that residual free speech position around, although I actually think if the activists had pushed the way they push now, I think they would have got their way because you can go back to the late sixties with, you know, black Panthers bringing rifles into the provost's office at Cornell. And you can see all of these instances and very little pushback. Uh, my, my hypothesis is on this is that actually the door was pretty much open since the mid mid to late sixties. There's not been any great resistance. Um, now, I was just at something called the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference, uh, where a large number of people, many of whom have been canceled, we, <laughs> um, were discussing these issues. And there's a guy called John Ellis, who was on my panel, who's done a great book called The Breakdown of Higher Education. And he's been around since the 50s in academia. Um, and it's very interesting to see him narrated and say how this starts out in the sort of late 60s. And it builds and builds and builds. And I think that's the better model for understanding this is it's there is no it, there wasn't this time in the sort of prior to the 2010s when everything was hunky dory. I mean, you had crazy incident it's incidences of, of kind of cancel uh, cancellation and navel gazing around anti-racism, which so the University of British Columbia in the mid 90s had one of these episodes. They brought in these high high-priced consultants because it, there was supposedly this pervasive systemic sexism and racism, and it was not based on any allegations or any data or anything. And this very high-priced consultant racked up a bill of several hundred thousand dollars, and in the end, it turned into this big joke. But that kind of just shows you how that kind of hysteria could whip up just as easily in the mid-90s. So I just think this is a question of the dial moving a little bit. It's not a radical step change from yeah. what I knew. Yeah, and I... Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you look at the numbers that are involved in uh, in some of these initiatives, it, it, it is mind-boggling, and also the amount of money that otherwise cash-strapped universities are spending on these initiatives. And if you look at the literature on diversity training, um, unconscious bias, uh, you know, implicit racism, one of the things that I've always found just utterly remarkable um, is the extent to which 
on the one hand, institutions of higher education are pushing these measures. But on the other hand, the academic literature is showing quite clearly many of these measures are deeply flawed. Now, there's a great review, actually, of um, diversity training, uh, I think, in the annual review of psychology. It just came out where they summarized everything that we know about the impact of a lot of this training and basically concluded by saying, look, I mean, we're spending tens of billions of dollars on programs that either are having no effect at all or in some cases are actually making things worse because people are feeling as though mandatory training is stifling um, their free expression and they're becoming more radical in response to that. So to me, you know, you've made this point and Fukuyama makes this point in his book about the sort of general dismissal of the scientific method and objective knowledge when it suits. And that is ultimately what undermines or weakens um, radical progressivism, in my mind. It's one of the one of the big reasons why I think it is actually illiberal, that it, it doesn't really have much of an interest in the values of, of the Enlightenment and, and the scientific method at all. Uh, and that's, you know, I think maybe sometimes I wonder if people go too far in calling it a new religion. I mean, John McWhorter and others have, made that argument that essentially that, you know, cultural socialism or radical progressivism does take on all the hallmarks of a religion. It's instinctively suspicious of any knowledge or empirical data that doesn't support its sacred uh, goals. It it treats criticism like blasphemy and it's organized around the sort of a very small elect that sort of preach this mm. gospel and often get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing so. Um, but, but, but there is in, in built in this, this, this deep rooted suspicion of the scientific method. And that's the reason, the big reason for me, why I've always struggled with it, especially when it's coming from institutions that are supposed <laughs> to be completely committed to the scientific method. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of my truth rather than objective truth is, is sort of the way that you could think about it. Um, but I think that all of these policies, and in the reports I talk, for example, about how exposure to more critical race theory in school, you know, what that leads to is students actually being more afraid to speak up and more afraid to criticize a black schoolmate, for example. And, and similarly, in, at work, the DEI training uh, leads to more self-censorship, and then it also leads, again, to unwillingness to uh, criticize a black coworker. Now, what that means is essentially that's going to impede uh, the feedback necessary for minorities to improve and progress. So it's actually going to retard the aims that these people claim to be um, fighting for. And, 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 and Shelby Steele, who uh, has this book, White Guilt, and I, you may be familiar with, and I, I, I think it's a fantastic book, but it, it essentially argues that all of these policies, like diversity training, are all virtue signaling. They were never intended to actually fix a problem. They were just intended to signal moral virtue, uh, to show, hey, look, I'm not a racist. Because according to Steele, there had been a shift in moral authority from Uh, white America to black America as a result of the civil rights movement. And in order to retain moral authority, American institutions had to sort of signal that they weren't among the fallen. And so all of these things can be interpreted as nothing more than than virtue signaling. uh, I'd even go further than that, actually, Eric. I mean, if you look at some of the studies on the impact of teaching kids about white privilege... There's a, a randomized controlled trial that shows uh, the end result is they become 
less sympathetic of economically disadvantaged white workers uh, who are seen to be responsible for their quote unquote failure in the system and who are sort of seen to be uh, blamed for you know their fixed identity. I mean, to me, that's that's not a something that we should be encouraging among the next generation. No, no, absolutely right. And I think even in the even in the diversity training world, they recognize that there's very little evidence that. I mean, the the smarter of them recognize that there's a problem, um, and there's at least some narrative around saying, "Can we run some randomized controlled trials, and can we have some metrics here?" Um, so, so, but I, I also want to add one point, which is this 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 debate over the culture war, or what I would say is the a foundational civilizational debate between cultural socialism and cultural liberalism, um, has a whole series of downstream effects that are extremely serious. Even if you think that this is a battle about nothing. Um, if you care about crime, you know, how are you going to discuss the causes of crime and murder? How are you going to, how are you going to talk about birth rate, family breakdown, homelessness, grooming gangs, immigration, you know, all of these other debates, which are seen as more concrete by, say, normal voters, if you like. All of those debates are affected by this debate because, you know, if you can't talk about immigration because that seems racist and therefore offensive to one of these disadvantaged groups, then the mainstream parties aren't going to talk about it. Well, that's going to lead to a populist rising because they're the only ones who can talk about it. That's just one example of where there are all kinds of repercussions uh, of of this sort of narrowing of the Overton window and shutting down of, of democratic debate. And that's rarely discussed, actually. Um, that's what I was going to ask you in the final yeah. few minutes is, you know, yeah. what's the answer to the culture wars? I mean, what what should governments in Western societies, I mean, if they can do anything in this area, what what should they be doing? What What's the what's the remedy to this polarization that that seems if you look at the data and the reports that you and others have done and it also instinctively just seems to be entrenched um, and seems to be accelerating, if anything. I mean, what what do we do about the culture wars? It's a big, well, big question. Yeah. What, what's your instinctive reaction? Well, I, I think what you see on the right is you see some people saying, oh, this is all the fault of liberalism, you know, like uh, Deneen and others, uh, that, you know, we have to abandon liberalism and move towards some kind of like theocratic, you know, system or... Uh, or you see some people say, no, what we have to do is retreat, set up separate institutions in this almost parallel universe. Uh, you know, both of those, I think, are, are not the right approach uh, or, or, or school choice and, and separate schooling. I wouldn't, uh, again, I don't think we were anywhere near exhausting the possibilities within conventional liberal democracy. So some of the things you can do are the things that DeSantis is doing start trying to sort of shape the school curriculum in a heavy-handed way. I'm afraid this has to involve a certain centralization of power away from uh, institutions and into the hands of, of central government. That sounds illiberal. It's not actually illiberal because what central government is doing in many cases is, as with the Higher Education Freedom Bill here, it's protecting the liberty of individuals against oppressive institutions. So it's protecting against private censorship or institutional censorship. Um, so what we need to do, I think, is use elected government, actually, to try and get cultural power away from the institutions, reform those institutions through 
for example, impartiality guidelines that are very, very finely detailed and enforced through regular reporting to Parliament or to Congress. Um, you know, critical race theory bans, in my view, are appropriate for schools, not for universities, but for schools. Uh, I think it's legitimate to say, you know, this is the curriculum that's going to be taught. We're not going to teach controversial subjects. And by the way, the guidance has to be very specific. So in the UK, it says you can't indoctrinate. But A, that's not enforced. And B, they don't define what politics is closely enough. They need to be saying um, systemic racism is a politically contested concept, which is not part of the definition of racism. That's got to be written down very, very specifically in, in, in all of these policy areas. So I think that if government was serious, flagging this stuff up in, in campaigns as well. So it's got to sort of, it's got to do this sort of campaigning and the political messaging, and it has to do the fine detailed policy making uh, to really bring this under control. And I think that'll help to change the culture, actually, because it will say society considers this to be unacceptable. And also, by the way, in schools, people should be taught this is the law, this is free speech, this is, you know, in the U.S., the First Amendment. All of that needs to be taught to school children. Then there needs to be a rebalancing of the curriculum away from just the sins of the right to saying, actually, let's look at the sins of the left as well, the Cultural Revolution, how many people were killed. Uh, let's look objectively at history, not just British colonialism, but Mughal colonialism and Aztec genocide. Let's try and contextualize this a little bit so that students aren't coming out with such a sort of lopsided view of world history. And it feels to me, looking at America, that uh, wherever you are on the political spectrum, they just seem to be much further down the road uh, when it comes to that debate about what to do. I mean, at the state level, there just seem to be more uh, initiatives and policies um, and responses to the culture wars um, than we are remotely close to um, discussing here in Britain. So... Um, it's been great to it's been great to chat to have you on to discuss the uh, the report the, the politics of the culture wars which you can download uh, from Policy Exchange. I'd obviously recommend Eric's other reports for the Manhattan Institute uh, and his work on academic freedom. Obviously, Eric is on Twitter, and uh, I'd recommend that you engage uh, with his work. Uh, Eric's been great to chat. It's been great to have you on, and. Um, we hope to uh, have you on again soon. Always a pleasure, Matt.